I direct your attention to Colossians 3, verse 18. We're going to focus on verses 18 to 21 this afternoon, but I want to read through chapter 4, verse 1. And the reason for that will be apparent as we proceed. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now this section is the so-called Haustaufen in German, which literally means house tables, but idiomatically house codes and is a German collective classification for terms of domestic relation. You'll notice the order that the apostle follows here. In verse 18, he begins with wives. Then in verse 19, he addresses husbands. In verse 20, children, or children and parents in 20 and 21. Fathers, I should say, and parents in 20 and 21. Slaves in 22, and then masters in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, keeping your finger there in Colossians 3, turn back to Ephesians 5 for a moment. And let's scan Ephesians 5, 22 and following. And let's see what we note. Ephesians 5. 22 and following. You'll notice that he begins another list of house taufen, house codes, with wives in verse 22, then husbands in verse 25, children in chapter 6, verse 1, Fathers, in chapter 6, verse 4. Slaves, in 6, 5. And masters, in 6, 9. These are parallel or duplicate lists. He follows the same order, does the Apostle Paul, in both instances. And the sequence is exactly the same in each case. Now, there is one more Haustaufen list in the Bible, and it is in 1 Peter chapter 2. For purposes of comparison, let's take a look at what the Apostle Peter does. Chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 7, and once again, scanning to note... particularly the order. So we've noted Paul's order when he composes this list. What order does Peter follow? In verse 18, he begins with servants. In chapter 3, verse 1, he moves to wives. In chapter 3, verse 7, he addresses husbands. The order is different in Peter's list than it is in Paul's. 
And it raises an intriguing question as to why Peter varies. Why does he begin with the end of what Paul places and put it at his beginning? Now, I'm not suggesting that there is a dependence of the one apostle upon the other. The Holy Spirit can inspire in any order in which he chooses. But let's understand that he uses human instruments for the reception of his revelation. And so it's an interesting question to ponder. Why does Paul go from wives to slaves and masters twice? And Peter goes from slaves and masters implicitly to husbands and at the end. Well, if you'll notice the context of 1 Peter 2, after verse 18, he talks about Christ, and in verse 22, he quotes a passage of Scripture, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Where is that Scripture passage found? obviously Old Testament because when a New Testament writer quotes scripture he's quoting the Old Testament ah that should be a favorite of yours what's he citing what famous chapter Isaiah 53 why should it be a favorite of yours Well, it'd be one of those passages that you could use to meditate upon as you prepare for coming to the Lord's table. From time to time, you want to look at the passages of Scripture which remind you of the purchase of your redemption before you come to the table in which you confirm that and receive the spiritual nurture of the grace of God. All right, so here is Peter in the context of these house codes citing Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is all about whom? Reba? In what what role? As a suffering servant. Are there other suffering servant passages in Isaiah? Yes, there are. There are four suffering servant passages in Isaiah, but Isaiah 53 is the longest of them. So, here is Christ, Isaiah 53, as the eschatological servant. The eschatological servant who suffers. The eschatological servant who takes the place of his servants. So this suggestion impresses me. That Peter begins with the slaves or the servants because he wants to make prominent Christ as the great servant, the eschatological servant. And so he begins with slave servants or bond servants in order to make prominent the role of Christ as the greatest and most glorious bond servant who gave his life in service for our redemption. Now that's only a suggestion about the variation, but nonetheless, it has the, the, the context of that uh, citation in verse 22 for a direct quotation from Isaiah 53. All right, now, let's go back then to Colossians 3, where we began. And let's discuss this matter of demarcation. You'll notice that I went over the end of the third chapter to the first verse of the fourth to read the entire uh, list of house code relationships, which spills over, according to the break in the English Bible, to Masters in 4.1. That demarcation is incorrect. Of course, there's nothing infallible about the chapter divisions or the verse divisions, but this division is incorrect. Why? Well, because masters belongs with slaves in the previous chapter. So chapter 4, verse 1 should actually be chapter 3, verse 26, and chapter 
4, verse 2, should then be chapter 4, verse 1. Now, these chapter divisions and verse designations are not in the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible or the Greek New Testament. They come much later, actually over a thousand years later, in order to make it more easy to consult the text. For instance, if you had a, a, a second or third century codex of the Greek New Testament, you wouldn't find any chapter or verse divisions in it. It'd be a continuous unfolding narrative or, or, or text. Same way is true of the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible, particularly the Dead Sea Scrolls, <clears throat> there aren't any chapter or verse divisions in it. So how did this all come about? Well, it begins with a man named Stephen Langton, who was an Englishman, became the Archbishop of Canterbury, as a matter of fact, he's a 13th century figure, died in 1228, as I placed on your outline. It was Stephen Langton who broke the Bible down into chapters. And basically, what Langton did almost 900 years ago still survives. In other words, it's the way the Bible is still broken down. There are some slight variations, but what he did, he did very well. But he did make a mistake here. Okay, well, he broke it, he broke the Bible down into chapters. Who put the numbers on the verses? Well, there is a Jewish rabbi called Rabbi Nathan, who in the 15th century assigned the verses to the chapters of the Old Testament. For the New Testament, it took another hundred years. A Frenchman named Robert Estienne, who actually ended up in Calvin's Geneva and produced a magisterial copy because he was a printer a magisterial copy of the Greek New Testament in which he assigned verse numbers to the verses of the Greek text which he printed. He ended up in Calvin's Geneva, though he had spent most of his life in Paris, France, and in Geneva established a printing company which published most of Calvin's works. So, Estian is noted for his contribution to Calvin's bibliography, as well as our uh, aid in getting the verses, verse numbers of the New Testament text. All right, there's a little history lesson on how it all came about. But let's ask uh, the more appropriate question, that those issues may not interest you as much as the text itself, Let's take a look at the order once again of Paul's list, referring to the symmetry of Colossians and Ephesians, and ask ourselves, why does he begin with wives and husbands and end up with slaves and masters? If you ponder that for a moment. What do you think? Smallest unit? The smallest unit of the church. Of the church, okay. Okay, it's a possibility. Ben has uh, risked his reputation on the small unit. He begins with the closest unit, doesn't he? He begins with the most intimate unit, doesn't he? Husband and wives. And then he moves to the next closest unit, namely the familial unit, parents and children. And finally, the least close or the less intimate unit, slaves and masters. So there is a method to the madness here, so to speak, from the marital to the familial 
to the occupational, or we might say vocational. Now, in addition to that order, for which there is a rhyme and reason, there is a pattern in the way he proceeds. He begins with an adscription, or that is, he addresses the addressee, wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters, and then he proceeds to exhort, and he uses an imperative. So where's the imperative in verse 18? Anyone? Be subject. Be subject. Where is the imperative in verse nine, in verse 19? Love. Love. Very good. What about verse 20? Obedient. What about 21? Do not exasperate. Yes, it's even a negative imperative. What about 22? Obey. Very good. What about 23? Do. What about 24? Oh, you hesitate. There's no imperative. Exactly. Okay. Not in 24. What about 25? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 24, there is one. It's in the word serve, but it doesn't look that way in the way it's been translated. Actually, it's translated more accurately according to the Greek text. Serve, imperative, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Christ. The English translation tries to smooth it out or give it an idiomatic, but it, it misses the imperatival force. So that brings us to 25, and in 25, uh, we were ahead of ourselves in 24, but in 25, uh, Ben will be right this time. There is no imperative in 25. And what about chapter 4, verse 1? Grand, yes. All right, so all the verses of this section, all the verses of this house code section have imperatives or hortatory imperatives with the exception of verse 25. Now that should remind us of the relationship between the imperative and the indicative. It can't be an imperative exhortation without an indicative state of fact. So, he is addressing Christians with these hortatory imperatives. He's he's addressing those who have died and risen again with Christ, and we can't forget that relationship which is behind. I'll say more about it in a moment, but nonetheless, we can't lose sight of how his imperative functions. His imperative functions in relation to the indicative which he has laid out very clearly since the 15th verse of the first chapter. All right, so he follows the pattern of adscription, exhortation, motivation. Now, as you scan these verses from 18, 3.18 to 4.1, what's the primary motivation in these house code exhortations or imperatives? What's the primary motivation? Pleasing the Lord. The Lord, exactly. Good. Very good, Loretta. In six cases... Six times in this section of nine verses, the Lord's name appears. Now, it does not look that way in chapter 4, verse 1, in your English translation. Why? Well, actually, the word Lord is there. New American Standard capitalizes The second M actually capitalized the beginning of the sentence with a capital M, but that should be a small M ordinarily. The capital M is on the heavenly master and is properly uh, capitalized there. But the Greek word for master, small M, the first word in the verse, and capital M near the last word in the verse, the Greek word is kyrios, which is the word for Lord. So, master in 4.1, the second master 
is Lord and could be translated, you have a Lord in heaven. But to keep the symmetry because the, the, an earthly Lord is called a Kyrios as well, the capital letter will distinguish the two categories. All right, now, my point for observing this frequency of the use of the term Lord in these house codes is that what is done imperatively is done with relationship to the indicative being in the Lord, in curio in the Greek. And that phrase is explicit in a couple of these instances, but it is because you are in the Lord that these imperatives flow out. It is because you are in Christ that these exhortations are appropriate. And these exhortations are being applied to these categories of individuals in the church at Colossae in in these household or domestic relationships. It is in the Lord that they are pleasing. It is in the Lord that they are uh, heartening. It is in the Lord that they are obedient because the Lord himself is the great King, Lord, Master, Lover of our soul. Now, let's take a look at a couple of structural elements that are reflected here in these house codes. And let's begin with a chiasm in verse 18 and 19. There is a chiasm there. You should be able to see it in your English translations. Can you tell me what it is? Yes. So, how does a chiasm work? A and A prime, and and is there a B? Yes. Very good. Okay. So, wives, husbands, husbands, wives. Okay. Watch my hands. Wives, husbands, husbands, wives. See the chiasm? Because the chiasm comes from the Greek word chi, which is just like an X. Now, why does he do this? This isn't accidental. This is intentional. The order of the Greek is exactly as we pointed out, it's the order of the English. Why does he do that? reciprocal, isn't it? Wives, husbands, husbands, wives. It's reciprocal. Why is it reciprocal? Say more. Yes, say say more. (laughs) It's a loving relationship. Pardon? It's a loving relationship. It is. Say more. You're saying well. Say more. In the Lord. In the Lord. That's fine. Two become one. The reciprocation of this relationship is two becoming one. And so he focuses upon its symmetry in order to show you that unity. It's a marvelous structural pattern of expressing the mystery of the relationship of marriage. So the chiasm here is quite, is quite poignant, intentional. The apostle is saying something quite sweet and affectionate about that relationship and pointing it out in its intimacy and closeness. The closest human relationship possible in the Lord. All right, now there's something else to notice structurally. And that's the terminal phrase. Terminal phrase means the ending phrase, what comes at the end of verses 18 and 20. You can pick it out of your English translation. Do you see it? In the Lord, yes. En curio is the Greek. In the Lord are the last words in the line of the Greek text in those two verses. 
as the English translations have placed them in the last place, in the terminal position. What is well-pleasing in the Lord is to be reflected in husband-wife, parent-children relationships, even slave-masters relationships. In the Lord. Yes, Reba? Yeah, it's not precise. Fathers and parents is not the same in the Greek. But there is a relational chiasm there. We can, we can agree to that. Right? No, it, it disappears after 22, from 22 on. All right, now this phrase, in the Lord, needs some comment. You might think it's obvious, but let's note that in the Lord means identification or participation or union with the Lord. The Lord God, triune God, the Lord Jesus, redeeming person of that trinity, in the Lord places the orientation outside of the husband, the wife, the parent, the child, slave, the master. In the Lord places the orientation of the relationship where the Lord is, in the heavenly arena, in the eschatological arena or dimension. So the eschatological shadow casts its aura over these relationships. That is, these relationships are to reflect the in the Lord arena, the in the Lord atmosphere, which is present in the Lord's own domain, namely the kingdom of heaven. Within husband and wife relations, there is to be a reflection of heaven itself. Within parent-children relations, there's to be a reflection of heaven itself. With slave-master relations, there's to be a reflection of heaven itself. In other words, these imperatives are coming out of the eschatological indicative, the indicative of what it means to live as if one were living out of where the Lord himself lives and dwells forever. That heavenly orientation is implicit, it's actually explicit in the fact that he says, in the Lord, and he says Lord over and over again in this section, six times in these nine verses. The ultimate reason is your eschatological understanding, your understanding of the heavenly relationship of, of the bond between yourself and your wife, your, uh, yourself and your husband, yourself and your children, your children and your parents, Masters and slaves, slaves and masters, these reciprocal relationships are relationships which in this case, in the Christian religion, are anchored in God's own relationship to his people. Now, we have talked about this before, and here we see a series of imperatival or hortatory exhortations which are specifically addressed to these groups these classes of people, and we need to review what we've already learned about the new creation in relationship to these lists, to these, to these house codes. The apostle has announced the new creation in Christ from chapter 1, verse 15 of this epistle going forward. Now in chapter 3, the, ch- the chapter we're finishing up in these days, <coughs> From the first three verses of this third chapter, the new creation is expressed as a resurrection from the dead. It is because you are alive in Christ, alive from the grave, alive from death, alive from the curse of a tomb. It is because you are alive from the dead and have that new life in Christ Jesus that wives, 
Be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, do not provoke your children, etc. You get the pattern, pattern of that indicative relationship. The new creation means new life. It means a new orientation. It means a new way of acting, thinking, behaving, and loving. Verses 5 to 7 of this third chapter. We've been encouraged then since we've been raised from the dead to put to death, to put to death the sins of the flesh, especially sexual sins in those verses. In verses 8 and 9, we've been encouraged to put to death. Once again, you've been raised up from Christ. You've been raised from the dead in Christ Jesus. Put to death the sins of the tongue, especially verbal sins. In verses 9b to 11, we've been encouraged to put to death the old man and put on the new man. Put to death the old man that died with Christ on the cross. Put, to, put on the new man that's been raised up with the newness of Christ, the new man of God, the second Adam, the man from heaven. Renewed in the image of Christ. Remember, we, we, we went through a description of what the image of God, the Imago Dei is. Now this image of Christ, which is mentioned in this third chapter, being renewed in those who have been raised up with him, put to death with him, raised up with him, glorified with him, seated at the right hand of glory, as Paul says in Ephesians. Now, put on forgiveness out of love, verses 12 to 14. That heavenly aspect, that heavenly ethic, that heavenly moral behavior, put on forgiveness out of love. You remember how love bracketed, forgiveness was bracketed in verse 13 by love in 12 and 14. Put on thankfulness out of the music of your worship, the songs of your heart, the adoration of your soul as you sing with hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, thankfulness, bracketing the, the music of the soul, the music of the heart, the music of worship in verse 16, 15, and 17 using the term Eucharisto in the Greek text, thankfulness and thanksgiving. All right, the perspective then is the perspective of the unfolding or the <clears throat> telescoping argument of the apostle, where he wants us to orient our behavior and our moral character to what Christ has done and what Christ has then brought to bear upon the, crea- the new creation, the new creature in Christ Jesus, the creature who is dead to the old man and alive to the new man, which is born again in Christ, regenerated, renovated, uh, <coughs> renewed, reborn in Christ Jesus. This is the pattern of now, you might say, the practical aspect of the Apostles' epistle. The paranetic, as we described several times ago, that is that which is hortatory or exhorting to live out of what you have become. To live out of the resurrected Christ. To live out of the heavenly glorification of the crucified dead and risen Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, this section raises the question of relationship. Human relations are a very large issue. Our generation is extremely sensitive to human relationships. And in fact, our generation may be described as oversensitive to human relationships. They become the central focus of all of our thinking, or can be. That has the potential to be exceedingly self-centered. And tragically, selfish. But nonetheless, it is the reality of the culture in which we live. And it is important for us to note that these house codes that the apostle is laying down under divine inspiration are house codes which have to do with human relationships. Husband-wife, parent-children, master-slave, or employee, or employer-employee. Reba, you had your hand up.
you know, that he was, I'm just thinking if we have that sense that he, we are living with him watching us, that, you know, you behave differently when you're in front of, yes. you know, someone, you know, of such esteem as you would, you know, in your bedroom alone with your wife and your husband, you know what I'm saying? I appreciate what you're saying and, you, and you're uh, saying it well. Yes, uh, we don't want the you and me so much as we want the in the Lord, but the you and me will be a in the Lord relationship. Uh, I, I would I would just ask you to think about changing your orientation just a little bit. I'd say it's, it's not so much you in front of Christ here, but you in front of Christ in heaven. That you would be thinking of your relationships as if you were living before the face of Christ in glory, in heaven itself. And therefore, encouraging your moral decisions, encouraging your thinking to to be energized and to act out of that relationship. Now, it's true, uh, we will not achieve perfection in this, but nonetheless, it is a helpful, as I've said before, Paul is being very pastoral to us in this relationship, in this way, in this manner. He's helping us orient our behavior to that arena which we hope to inherit, where that behavior will be perfectly uh, portrayed and perfectly uh, <coughs> uh, sinlessly lived and uh, and experienced. Okay, well, I <coughs> I want to go in on to talk about this matter of relation under certain categories, but uh, <coughs> if you have no other questions right now, we'll take our break and we'll come back and then we'll dig into these other uh, elements. Now, underneath that term relation on your outline, I have the word egalitarian, which is a very prominent word in our modern discussion of relationships. What's egalitarian mean? Okay, so could you give another word for it? Yes, it's looking at equality. Okay, so it's a term which emphasizes equality of relationship versus a totalitarian, which would be a more dictatorial or <coughs> dominant form of relationship. Now, <coughs> yes, Ben? Did you earlier indicate that our current situation in, in, in society is that there's uh, create successful relationships? Or is it yes. Yes. In what way do you that? Well, um, the modern feminist movement has uh, underscored the relationship of women to various aspects of the culture and to society. Uh, <clears throat> the, the issues of uh, uh, children's relationship, particularly uh, Older children's relationship to authority is also an issue which is uh, very much in focus. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we are uh, obsessed in some ways with relationship to the point that we exploit victimhood and uh, what goes along with it uh, in order to uh, twist the relationship to our own self-interest, uh, self-serving. There's nothing wrong with this egalitarian um, mood in the culture. The equality of uh, standing is definitely something which is part of the gospel of Christ. There's neither male nor female, bond nor free. There is that Christian egalitarianism. And that, egal that, e that e equality or treatment of equality is based upon the renewal of the image of God, the fact that the image of God is there in the first place, and the renewal of the image of God in the Christian uh, uh, relationship, the relationship to Christ. My point here is to underscore the dignity of that position. That is, it's based upon a foundation 
which is present in the created order, namely that man, male, and female has been made in God's image. And that relationship, though tarnished by the fall, that image, though tarnished by the fall, I should say more accurately, is restored in measure in the, in the image of Christ, which has been described here in this uh, chapter, uh, 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 this third chapter, uh, where we talked about that. Uh, now my, my eye is not uh, landing on it, ideally. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes, verse 10 of this third chapter. All right, so egalitarian versus totalitarian, equality versus dominance or manipulation or tyranny. The scriptures are definitely committed to the equality because of the image of God which is present in every human person, male and female, parent and child, slave and master. So that dignity is respected in terms of uh, worth, value, respectability, uh, honor, where honor is due, etc. None of that is altered by the fall. What is altered by the fall is the perversion of it or the resistance to it. So the redemption would not change those relationships. In other words, Husbands would not be subject to wives. That would, that's not the, the biblical pattern of recognizing the equality of those that stand in that relationship. They stand in an equal relationship before one another, before God. But they don't stand in an equal relationship in terms of role. That distinction remains. So with the one hand, the Christian gospel or the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, indicates this equality of being, this equality of being made in the image of God, this equality of dignity, this equality of worth or value, but at the same time recognizes also distinction or difference in role. What God has ordained is the equality of, of uh, standing before him, but he has also ordained the subordination of role as one stands before him. The two aren't mutually exclusive. The two are complementary. Wives submit, husbands love. All right, so our culture has difficulty sorting that out. Uh, our culture says that submission means inferiority. Our culture means that being under someone else's uh, authority with respect to our uh, gender or whatever demeans us. This is not true, biblically speaking. There is no demeaning of a wife in her submission. Her submission is a voluntary or a willing reflection of a pattern which is uh, part of the created order. And the recreation does not destroy the created order. The recreation restores the created order. The uh, women's liberation movement within the church is wanting to destroy that created order. Their argument exegetically is that what Paul is doing in reinforcing the created order of submission and or and authority, submission or and authority to a, a husband or a, an, an overseer or an employer or whatever that that relationship is uh, is uh, not valid because Christ has destroyed it. Paul was simply a man of his age. He was raised in a patriarchal culture, and therefore he doesn't get it. So uh, we have we have matured. We have grown beyond that, so that uh, we can authorize rejection of that and uh, you know we will exercise authority over men husbands will be in submission to wives <clears throat> all right now this uh, argument has uh, been percolating for almost 50 years and it has made a great impact upon 
our own culture and upon the church. It has led to the ordination of women to positions of leadership and authority, like ministers and elders, etc., even bishops in the Episcopal communions and Lutheran communions, even rabbis in the Jewish communion, etc. And uh, it is a rejection of the created order and the recreated order. So, So my point here is to note that those who argue that the Christian gospel changes the order of creation are not arguing consistent with the apostles' thinking nor consistent with Christ's own thinking himself. For Christ has a wife. He has a bride. And she follows the order of the new creation, which is to be in submission to her bridegroom. She delights in submitting to him because she loves him for laying down his life for her. And Paul spells this out in detail in Ephesians 5, of course. So we're reminded that as we, as we underscore and insist upon equality of person, equality of dignity, equality of value, we're not going to demean or degrade women, we're not going to degrade or demean children, we're not going to degrade or demean any human being. <clears throat> While we hold that uh, strongly as equality of, of person because of the image of God, we're also going to recognize submission or subordination of role, distinction of role in those relationships. So the next set of words there, restoration versus liberation, the modern liberation movement wants to free us from these roles of submission and role distinction. They they want egalitarianism with no role distinction. That is contrary to what the scriptures teach, and we cannot go down that road without creating chaos and, and mayhem within the Christian community, as in fact uh, has been demonstrated. The clincher in this discussion is the understanding of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. If it demeans a human being to be in a subordinate role to one over him or her. If that's the case, if that very relationship demeans that that subordinate person to an inferiority position, then you see that's what you're going to have to argue with respect to the Godhead. You're going to have to argue that the son is inferior to the father. And it is somewhat interesting to note that this radical liberation movement has come out of those circles which are hostile to an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. How so? Well, remember that the Son of God is subordinate to the Father with respect to his role. He is equal to the Father with respect to his person. He is equal to the Father with respect to his being. But he comes to do the will of his Father gladly. He comes to be the servant of his Father in heaven. He comes to obey the mandate that his Father has given him, namely, to perform the work of redeeming us from our sins. There is no inferiority there. That is, there is no less worthiness there. There is that voluntary willingness to be in submission to the Father because of the distinction between God the Father and God the Son. So you're attacking the very heart of the relational trinity by attacking this relational dignity in man as a creature in the image of man and woman as creatures in the image of God. So on the one hand, we want to hold fast to the dignity and worth particularly of women in a society in which they're objectified, degraded, demeaned, and treated as toys and objects of satisfaction, etc., <clears throat> we're, we're uh, uh, definitely standing against that. But at the same time, we're not raising them to the port- to the position of being goddesses uh, or of some mystical creation. They're p- persons in the image of God as men are creation persons in the image of God, 
and they're in a relationship in which that personhood and dignity and value is to be honored reciprocally, respectfully, with respect to one another. So we hold these two positions hopefully in balance because the new creation does not destroy or reverse role relationships. It renews them. It restores them. It renovates them. That which has been tarnished and corrupted by sin in the fall is restored in measure in recreation, redemption, and resurrection. Keep the balance then. Equality of person, equality of dignity, equality of worth, subordination of role, subordination of of, uh, relationships, subordination of position. Those two go together in the balance of the Christian ethic with respect to these relationships within these bonds of familiarity. familiarity. Any, any questions about that? Any things that you might want to press? <clears throat> these, these relationships are not to be abused. They're not to be uh, tyrannically domineering and, and, uh, and, and uh, abusive. Uh, they're to be sweet and loving and uh, persuasive. Uh, they are not to be uh, uh, ruthlessly dominated by a tyrannical uh, use of force and, uh, and abusive tongue, etc., uh, whether it's actual physical or verbal abuse. Yes, Ariba? As you're talking, I'm thinking about our nature is to be sort of totalitarian in that whether it's with a a marital relationship or relationships with others, we want to dominate and control the relationship kind of thing, some to different. So in a way, we have that totalitarian um, image. And, but on the, so that's one thing. And then another comment is the egalitarian is that women are equal, so we've taken and perverted. So we, in our own simple nature, have perverted the, have, have become totalitarian in so much of our interpersonal relationships that we want to dominate. We want to be the dominant one. We want to be the one that is in the know, that our, our theology is better than somebody else's, mine, you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, my end times eschatology, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, um, uh, and then you take the egalitarian, or the equality, and what we've perverted that is we've made them that women are now expected to work and to support the family and to be equal with a man in um, responsibility in that kind of relationship. So not only is she supposed to be a provider, but she's also being the one that's the cook, the bottle washer, the you know, the cleaning. Or vice versa, that they've all taken on all the other all roles. It's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> it can be a mess. Yeah. We're not denying the perverse effect of sin upon these relationships, but the ideal that is here is the ideal which is anchored in a transcendent reality. The reality of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and His bride, namely the Church. That's, that is our, that is our aim and goal. So if we're to be faulted for uh, not ordaining women to positions of leadership in the church, it's because we're anchoring that in the relationship ultimately between the father and the son, between Christ and his bride. Those are creation ordinance pattern paradigms. They are new creation renewal paradigms, and we're bound by them if we're bound by the word of God. It is not a, uh, a dissing of women in terms of their abilities or in terms of their gift. It is simply a recognition that God has placed these distinctions within the home and within the church, and we honor God in so honoring those distinctions. All right, now there is uh, more to reinforcing this, and that's the narrative which I've already alluded to. We've emphasized the redemptive historical narrative throughout this epistle, namely the narrative which brings Paul out of darkness into light, brings him out of death into life, 
brings him out of the grave, so to speak, into resurrection. We've emphasized that narrative which began in his experience on the Damascus Road and is the narrative into which he invites the Colossians by means of his argumentation and his exposition here of the meaning of of Christ's life, death, and resurrection in this letter. With respect to these house codes, I think there is also a redemptive historical narrative. It's obvious to see it in Christ and his bride. In other words, there is, in the relationship between Christ and his bride, as Ephesians 5 spells out in detail, there is a narrative, that narrative of a relationship that exists even now. That is the anchor and the heartbeat of a Christian marriage. What exists already with Christ and his beloved is that which we seek in our uh, our relationship with our beloved. Husbands, wives, wives with husbands, reciprocally uh, related to the, the greater transcendent narrative of Christ and his bride, the bride and the bridegroom. All right, so it's not just a static idea. It's not just a kind of doctrinal uh, uh, prescription. This is a narrative drama. It is a vitality which is already existent in the relationship, the ongoing eternal relationship between Christ and his bride. We are privileged to be drawn into that mystery. Paul calls it a mystery in Ephesians 5. Now, second of all, there's this narrative with respect to the the children of God. The triune God has his children. They are called his sons and daughters. They come to that relationship by wonderful adoption. But behind this relationship is that narrative that God in his triune glory has deigned to take into union with himself children of this world, sons and daughters of this world, and made them the children of the age to come. So more than just these static relationships, more than just these patterns of behavior, there is this redemptive historical or eschatological drama which is behind parents, fathers love your children, parents, children obey your parents. Let's not lose sight of that heavenly orientation of the drama or the narrative that is already in process, has been going on and will continue to uh, pertain to eternity. Now the last one is servants and masters. The triune God also has deigned to call us his servants. And that servant service that we have received or that servanthood that we have received is anchored in the eschatological servant himself, namely the servant of the Lord whom we talked about earlier in this discussion from Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the double dignity here. We're not only called the servants of God, but we're called the servants of his servant, his great servant, his eschatological servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given that label, even as he has given that label. We're given the privilege of having the same name given to us as it is given to the Son of God himself. That is true of the children of God as well. They are called sons of God, even as he is the son. So the pattern for their sonship is the, is the Trinitarian or the eternal pattern of the eternal Son and the eternal Father. Same, tier, same thing is true here with respect to servanthood. The dignity of being a servant or bondservant of Christ carries with it this willingness to serve in submission and with respect to those who are masters or lords over us. All right. <clears throat> Beyond then the, shall we say, the mere practical, beyond the ethical, beyond the, shall we say, relational, horizontally speaking, there is this redemptive historical narrative that draws us into the drama of the heavenly narrative, the heavenly reality, the heavenly vitality. That, that is what lends even more richness to what the apostle is describing here in these uh, house codes. Now, a, a couple of comments on a, a, a couple of verses here. Uh, we're going to leave masters and slaves to the next time, but a couple of words in 19 and 21. First of all, New American Standard translates that verse in 19 
Uh, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The word embittered here uh, refers to a kind of harshness. Anger, which is the opposite of sweetness and loving affection. That kind of toxic or rancid feeling can enter into a marriage relationship. And so uh, when we uh, deal with spousal abuse, etc., one of those things that we notice is the bitterness of that relationship and the uh, rancor with which it proceeds to become uh, beyond verbal, perhaps even physical or worse. This is not to be found in the Christian marriage relationship, the the harshness and anger which uh, may characterize marriages outside of Christ is not to be characteristic of marriages inside Christ because Christ doesn't treat his bride this way and the bride does not treat her groom this way. She does not treat Christ with any anger or harshness. Now, the second word is in verse 21, and that's the phrase, do not exasperate your children. Lest they lose heart. That's an interesting addition to exasperation. What's in view here is fathers taking the heart or taking the spirit out of their children, either by deriding them or demeaning them, or discouraging them, taking away their dignity, taking away their individuality, taking away their value as persons made in the image of God and those for whom the gospel is an invitation to come to Jesus. Don't cut the heart out of a child. Don't break the spirit of that child There's no medicine better than a few minutes on daddy's lap with a a hug and a bond of affection. So this character of the father to the children and the children in relationship to the father uh, obeying him and being uh, desirous of that affection from their fathers and mothers as well is underscoring once again this way in which God deals with us. The triune God deals with us as sons and daughters, his children. He doesn't take the heart out of us. He renews our heart. He doesn't discourage us. He encourages us. He does all of this with respect to how he has proceeded with even those that are glorified saints before his face even now. They're still his children. They're still his sons and daughters. Glorified so, and so they, they serve him in affection, and he delights in their uh, their service. He delights in their obedience. He delights in their submission. He delights in their being his children. He calls them his sons and daughters because of his son who delights him to eternity. All right, um, these uh, these patterns here are patterns which are woven back into the fabric of the tapestry of the Apostles' redemptive historical panorama. That begins on the road to Damascus. It matures here in the Colossian epistle, and he's laying this forth, setting this forth in terms, as I said, of the new creation paradigm, which begins in verse 15 of chapter 1 and falls out throughout the rest of the epistle in significant ways. I should make a footnote here. Chapter 4 will challenge us to make that clear, and I hope that I will be able to rise to the challenge. But nonetheless, the next time we'll look at slaves and masters. Do you have any questions or comments before we send you to your thanksgiving? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us relationships, most thankful for the relationship with you because of your son and servant, because of his bride, the church, 
because of his great love and condescension. And by his grace, we will be called the children of God, the bride of the heavenly bridegroom, the servants of the great and eschatological servant. We thank you for folding us down into the drama and for these reminders from these house codes of the epistle. Lord, bless us in living out of this drama and reality. Keep our eyes fixed upon our heavenly environment and let that influence our earthly behavior. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.